Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. Okay, we need to jump into scripture. So Luke 23, and I asked Wayne if he would read to us this morning. So I'll read here, Luke 23, 33 through 43. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and, and the criminals, one of on the right and the other on the left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. And the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneering, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. He is the Christ, the chosen God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him and said, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then Jesus said, Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Or surely I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. We've reached the cross in our journey, a long journey through Mark's gospel uh, that's taken us about a year and a half. And as we've reached the cross, remember, we're studying together, walking through together a series we're calling The Crux, looking at the seven statements Jesus makes from the cross. Our English words, crucial and crux, both actually come from the Latin word for cross. The Latin word for cross is crux. Our use and definitions of those words in English of crucial and crux actually find their meaning. They're, they're shaped and defined by the fact that the crucial, crucial central theme, the crux of the Christian message, is the cross itself. And so that's why we're slowing down to evaluate this together. My goal really for us as a church this summer in considering the cross is to look at what it teaches us about who God is, uh, as it, what it teaches us about humanity, to see what it says maybe to someone who's lost and, and far from God, and yet others who maybe need to hear what it says to us as followers of Jesus. And so we look at this second statement of Jesus from the cross, where he says to this thief, today you will be with me in paradise. You know, it wasn't long ago, I had a friend who was finishing his master's studies, and he gave me access to an app that I'd never heard of that's used by college students. It's called Pulse. It's used by college students all across the nation. I believe it was developed at Dartmouth College, but it's used all over the nation, and it gives students an opportunity to anonymously reply to polls that are put out by different universities all over the country. And because of that, it gives you a unique glimpse into kind of the psyche and the thinking of the modern young American and what they think and feel about different things. And as soon as I hopped on, one of the first things that I saw as a question that was listed on this app was the question, what thoughts keep you up at night? And the top answer that was listed there was people saying, my fears are what keep me up at night. And then it started basically a thread, a trail of a bunch of different questions as different universities like Dartmouth itself jumped in and asked the question, well, then what then is your biggest fear? Topping the list were things like failure and loneliness, suffering loss, and never discovering a real sense of purpose, but topping the list was death. And then it was Oklahoma State that jumped in and asked, well, do you fear your own death? 20% said, well, I'm not really sure. 33% said yes, while 46% said no, I don't fear my own death. What was interesting, though, is that after you answer the question, you can give your anonymous explanation as to why you answered that way. And it was those comments that caught my eye as people described why they said, no, they don't fear their death. Many who wrote their responses said that they fear the loss of others more than they do their own life. Others jumped in and said they fear the process of dying more than death itself. 
while still others, to my surprise, a very large contingency of these young people who answered this question said that they just wanted to die. They longed for it so they didn't have to face life anymore or that they wished maybe they'd never even been born or that they could cease to exist, that they wished they could do that, bring that about without hurting their family. Others then jumped in and began to comment about how they feared never being loved more than they feared death itself. Again, College Pulse, quoting from them, their question, in general, what is it about death that's the scariest or most uncomfortable thing for you? The top answer, which beat out the second place one, the second place answer was the possibility that I might die in pain. The top answer was the idea of not existing at all. It was the unknown. What is it about death that's so scary, so uncomfortable for you? It's the unknown, the, the fact that we can't be certain that, that we are, are sure of what will happen after we die, that we might just go away in a moment and never exist ever again. That's what troubled so many people. It's not surprising if you've ever looked at polls of people's greatest fears, it doesn't really matter what continent you're even searching in or what demographic they're in. The two greatest fears on almost every poll is always public speaking and death. Neither are surprising, are they? It's really not surprising that people are afraid to get up in front of others, but it's definitely not surprising that people fear death. And I have never, I've never faced death like the two men in our story on either side of Jesus are facing it in this moment. Death was imminent for them. There was no denying it. There would be no escaping it. And they knew it. It was so close they could begin to taste it. With each minute, their strength was weakening. With each breath, it was becoming more difficult than the previous one. And one of the thieves, or more accurately defined by Matthew and Mark as insurrectionists, were frightened in that moment. And he, overcome with fear, he prayed only for a way out, and he found none. And so it tells you in the Gospels that he then joined in with the mockery of Jesus. Saying, if you're really the Christ, then save yourself and us and prove it. The other thief, though, not overcome with fear, but overcome with faith, rebuked his partner in crime, saying that this is justice for us. We deserve this. But then he says, but he did not. And he looks at Jesus and makes the simple request, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's interesting, isn't it? Because the, the idea of Jesus' kingdom has really become the joke of the day. It's the running theme of the moment. It's the false accusation that was thrown out about Jesus, that he's trying to overthrow the Roman government. It's then the soldiers who properly dressed the king in his royal robe. It's the soldiers who also handed him a scepter after beating his crown of thorns into place with it. It's the climax, the pronouncing of him as the king of the Jews, even the inscription above his head. But this man saw not a king on the cross next to him. He was certain he saw the king there next to him. It's interesting because the other gospel accounts actually tell you that this guy starts in with his comrade, that, that the two of them are saying the same things, that both of them are reviling Jesus. And Matthew 27, 44, it says, even the robbers, plural, the two guys were, who were crucified with him, reviled him. He wasn't initially impressed with Jesus, but something dramatically changed and shifted inside of him. Remarkably, though, it seems as though the only thing this guy even knows about Jesus are the things that he's learning about him while nailed to a cross next to him. The sign above his head, Jesus, the King of the Jews. The crowd, as they shouted, he saved others, himself he cannot save. If you are the Christ, if you really are the chosen of God, then prove it to us. It was Jesus' first words then, spoken again and again, Remember, as the linguists point out to us, that first statement, it implies the way that the sentence is structured, that it was repeated again and again. That first statement was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We picture a thief on a cross next to Jesus, watching Jesus have spikes driven into his hands and his feet, and Jesus crying out in agony and pain, but then crying out the audible words, Father, forgive them. It's then as he was placed upright and the weight of his body began to sag down and rip his flesh on his back apart, that again he cries out in agony, but cried out, forgive them. 
It's him looking down as people who have already accounted him for dead, that they're casting lots for his clothing to divide it amongst themselves. Now there's a celebration that the man has died to the spoils go the victor. And again, he hears him, Jesus, say, Father, forgive. It's how they continue to mock and revile him. The gospels even say spitting upon him. And again, they hear him say, he hears him say, Father, forgive them. I'm certain if you look at history, crucifixion was a common thing in this era. I'm certain this is not the first crucifixion that this guy has seen. I'm also certain, though, that this is the closest view he's ever had of one. Because he himself is dying in this same form, looking Jesus' direction. And I'm also certain he never saw someone respond the way Jesus responded. As he looked Jesus' direction, he knew this was no mere man. I mean, you can be certain of this. He heard of Jesus' power from even the mocking taunts of those who said, oh, he saved others, but look at him. Himself he cannot save. He may have heard of his power, but what he saw, think of it, was Jesus' great love. Demonstrated as he prayed for even his enemies in that dark moment. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Remember in the Gospels when the guys are on a boat with Jesus? And remember, they wake him up because he's weary and asleep. And when they wake him up, they begin to say, Jesus, do you even care? Don't you see that we're perishing? You remember, Jesus stands up and he rebukes the wind and the wave. And when he does, it goes flat, calm in an instant. And it says that one of the guys speaks up on the boat with him and says, oh, behold, what manner of man is this? So impressed with Jesus' power. How do we categorically fit him in with other men? We cannot see him any longer as a mere man. Behold, what manner, what kind of man is this? By the end of John's life, John, the the one whom Jesus sat and leaned his head upon at the Last Supper, John, who called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved, who was so confident in Jesus' love and commitment to him, John would write at the end of his life, behold, not what manner of power, but he'd say, behold, what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we would be called the children of God. The thing that impressed him after seeing Jesus' life seeing his passion, seeing his suffering at the end of John's life, the thing that he's reminiscing on and saying, oh, behold, is not look at his power. What manner of man is this? It's behold the love. What manner of love? What kind of love? This is categorically different love. Look at his love, he said. It's that same letter that John would pen where he'd say this, he'd say that and that kind of perfect love casts out our fears his love that is perfect it removes it dissolves our fears think about it it's it's our confidence that he's too powerful to make a mistake but also that he's too good and too loving to ever be neglectful that kind of faith and that kind of powerful love drives out all of our fears and we're seeing it we're seeing this This thief's fear turned in a moment, transformed into a form of faith. And I'm confident that can happen for us too. That we too can have our fears transformed into faith, especially as we remember his power, yes, his ability to do anything, but we remember and marvel at his love. You're so valuable to God, so valuable in fact that he purchased you with the only thing in the universe that he couldn't just snap his fingers and make more of, the precious blood of his son. My friends, I was just reminded this week, looking at this passage, that you and I, we have more reason not to fear than we have reasons not to trust him or to take steps of faith and try. We have great reason to trust him. Even when facing what men fear most, death itself, there's no need to fear. Because in the face of something so dark, Jesus in the moment here promised something so wonderful when he looked back the direction of the thief and responded saying, assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Remember, Jesus' first words were a prayer. And when you think about it, Jesus' second words here are really an answer to a prayer addressed to a single individual. He spoke these words back to this man as if he's the only man on the face of the earth. 
which is wild when you think about it, because Jesus is on a cross and what he is accomplishing in this moment affects all of humanity from all of eternity past into all of eternity in the future. And yet Jesus will pause in this massive climactic moment to look the direction of a single person. It's one of the reasons I love that story of blind Bartimaeus so much where Jesus is walking with a crowd following him, and it talks about how this whole crowd is moving quickly but quietly to keep up so that they can hear what Jesus is teaching. But then this blind beggar begins to yell out and cry for mercy, and everybody else warns him. The wording is even that they threaten him. And yet Jesus stops. It says that Jesus stood still, as if the one insignificant beggar was the only person present, the only mission the only thing that needed love or attention or affection, and Jesus would touch and heal him. Those New Testament moments like that, they have an Old Testament foreshadow of it. It's when David sits alone and begins to pen a psalm where he's thinking about the the existence of a creator who's massive and grand and capable of doing so many things, but then he marvels at the reality that that great God cares for his insignificant life when he pens Psalm chapter 8 and says, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? He's talking about himself. Who am I that you're mindful of me or that you would care for me? In this moment, we're seeing it happen where Jesus is on a cross and to an undeserving nobody on the cross next to him, Jesus says the promise, assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, why? Why does this Jewish rebel, the the thief, even pray? He, He didn't pray because he was frightened, nor was he seeking an easy way out of a hard situation, because really, there was a second thief present, and that's exactly why he prayed. He prayed in that manner, mocking Jesus, if you're really the Christ, then save us. Save yourself and save us with you. I I believe you could accurately say about that thief that he did not suffer over who or what he was. He suffered only in being where he was in that moment. No, but that was not true of the other thief that was repentant. He asked not to be relieved from his suffering. What did he ask? It was only to be remembered in Jesus' glory. For him, hell was not necessarily being where he was, but in realizing whom he was in the presence of Jesus. Think about that. I think worse for him than being where he was was the reality of who he was in the presence of Jesus. He has this serious reality check about both what matters because he's dying and because of who he really was because he's in the presence of deity. Isaiah is a young prophet. He tells the story in the Old Testament of this vision of reality where he says, I saw the Lord. He finds himself in this vision present in the courtroom of God in the temple. He he says, I'm in the presence of God. He's high and lifted up. And when he saw God in all his splendor, he saw himself in a way he'd never seen himself before. He saw himself and instantly said, I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. I am unclean. He was there in his presence seeing God in your splendor, your glory. It's crazy. And then he looked at himself and said, oh God, I can't even even bear to be in your presence. I, I will be judged. This is terrifying for me. Having seen himself in light of God in comparison to who God was, he was undone crumbled to his knees because he didn't like what he saw in himself. Oh, I'm a man that's unclean, he said. Have you had a moment like this that leaves you with a real vision of reality, the reality of yourself and your shortcomings and your desperate need for God? Jesus is not a fashion accessory to be added on to your life. Jesus is a savior and a Lord that must be yielded to. And when we get a clear picture of him, as this man does, Things like his fear of the worst the world could throw at him, death itself, pales in comparison under the shadow of the cross next to him where Christ himself, a crucified King and Lord, Savior and God is there. Faith is stirred in this man as he looks toward Jesus and says, oh Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He had this amazing moment where it seems like the Holy Spirit gave him eyes to see things as they were. And he cries out, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus responded, assuredly, I say to you, 
Today you will be with me in paradise. Now slow down. I think we're meant to find ourselves in this moment. In fact, in church history by the 5th century, there's all of this folklore and rumor uh, that different segments of the church start applying names to these two thieves and individuals that probably is just folklore and even giving backstory and history about them because this, this moment so captured the early church where they recognized that they were meant to find, yes, the humanity of these individuals see them as people, but they were meant to find themselves in their place there. I mean, when you think about it, there's intentionally three crosses atop Calvary's hill that day. It had to be so at least because the prophets had foretold that it would be this way. All four Gospels will give you this detail that he was crucified between two thieves. And the reason they give that detail is because the prophet Isaiah in chapter 53, verse 12, said that he would be numbered with the transgressors. He's seen, he's viewed as being one of them, as bad as them in that moment. Oh, it had to be so. There needed to be three crosses because it demonstrated the unfathomable depths that our God would descend to to be numbered amongst the transgressors in order to rescue and redeem us. The one who is born surrounded by the beasts of the field is now perishing, numbered with, and I quote from a commentary I read this week, the refuse of humanity. There's this incomprehensible humbling of Almighty God to suffer in such a shameful manner, naked and on a cross between two of the worst of society. It had to be this way because it also shows us the position he occupies still as a substitute, that he would take our place as the condemned, our place as the shamed one, our place numbered as a transgressor. It also had to be so these other thieves were there because it gave a visual visual representation of the reality all of humanity finds itself in. We will individually, as a sinner, either revile and reject him as one of these men does next to him, or we individually, personally, as a sinner, will repent and receive him. I mean, think this through with me. Neither of these guys were more deserving of mercy, grace, or forgiveness. In fact, both were deserving of death and of separation. Ephesians chapter 2, it says it so beautifully in verses 8 and 9, saying that for by grace, though, You've been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any should boast. Between those two thieves, there seems to be no essential difference between the two of them in nature, in history, in circumstances. They were really one and the same positionally. And yet one responded so different, didn't he? They had equal access to Christ. Both heard and saw what took place during the six-hour stretch that Jesus was on a cross. Both were notoriously wicked, suffering acutely, and both were dying, and both urgently needed to find forgiveness. And yet only one of them would find it. I think for us, we're meant to read the story and recognize in the moment that as the th- we have to find ourselves first as the thief in order to later find ourselves counted as sons. We have to first recognize that, that I am this wicked. I am this broken. I am this deserving of judgment. I am this unable to rescue or help myself as this man. I have to first identify as the thief if I'm going to be accounted as a son. According to Mark and Matthew, as I mentioned earlier, he wasn't just a thief, but he's also a, an individual who's a part of a rebellious regime, something that we too are guilty of. In fact, in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, it says that the wages of sin is death. It's a familiar verse to many of you, I'm sure. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. When it says the wages of sin is death, the Greek word for wages, what you're paid for your rebellion against God is the Greek word that's used to describe a soldier's rations. The imagery it's painting is that a life lived in rebellion against God, waging war against God himself, The payment for that is separation from God for eternity. We are this thief and rebel in this moment. We are just as guilty and just as hopeless and helpless to save ourselves as the man fastened to a cross next to Jesus was. That is where we are in this story. And yet that man still had the opportunity just to look humbly in repentance towards Jesus' direction and say, oh, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? This rebel didn't ask 
Jesus, would you just get me down? And then when you do, would you honor and exalt me with you when you come into your kingdom? He simply says, Lord, remember me. Really wrapped up in that request is he's asking, would you pardon and forgive me? Would you let me belong with you in your kingdom? Would you take me where I can be with you? Would you remember me? Make no mistake, this guy, he knows he's getting what he deserves. He's clear on that. Remember, he rebuked his partner in crime saying that very thing. He told him, we deserve this. This is justice for us. Do you not fear God? He even asked him. Don't you fear God? This is what we deserve. Then he shuddered in that moment under fear of God and his justice and then looked towards Christ himself with the request for mercy. Oh, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He recognizes in this moment his own sinfulness. It's unavoidable. And simultaneously, he's looking at the sinless one and he's seeing his perfection. As he says to his friend, this man has done nothing wrong. It was more than a perfect man he began to recognize next to him, though, because he cries out to him, think about it, as one that he believed could save him and be king over his life. He's recognizing this is the one the prophets had foretold. His little statement is pregnant with meaning. He had heard the crowd scoff, calling Jesus the king of the Jews and mockingly saying, if you are really the son of God, get down and prove it. But for that thief next to Jesus, the very fact that Jesus stayed where he was rather than getting down, and the fact that he prayed for forgiveness for his enemies as he did was all the proof he needed to believe that this was God who would reign as king and a savior who could be trusted. As one author, A.W. Pink, put it in his book about the seven sayings of Christ, he said, outward circumstances all seem to belial, to disprove his kingship. Instead of being seated on a throne, he hung upon a cross. Instead of wearing a royal diadem, his brow was encircled with thorns. Instead of being waited upon by an entourage of servants, he was numbered with transgressors. Nevertheless, there was one who saw his kingship in that moment. And so he cried out towards that king and said, Oh, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. To which Jesus replies, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus' first words, remember, the Father forgive them, were a statement about forgiveness being available. This second statement, though, makes clear who forgiveness is really available to. And what we find that's most shocking is not that it's available even to a thief and a rebel as twisted as this man was. What we really find most shocking is that we find forgiveness is available even to us because we are in this story, the twisted, sinful thief and rebel. His first word was about forgiveness. His second word was about what forgiveness then makes available to us. It makes available to us a place in his kingdom. And we've talked at length about about Jesus' kingdom as we've walked through Mark's gospel. Remember, Jesus went out preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He was all about it teaching and heralding that the kingdom of God was presently here. Remember, we talked about what theologians refer to as the tension of the now here and still coming, that we live in the now here and yet we still wait. The now here, the present reality of the king reigning, ruling and reigning in our lives. And because of his presence with us, we experience a a foreshadow of what it will be like to be with Jesus one day in his kingdom where there's peace in our hearts, where there's comfort in the midst of sorrow where there's love, where, where it's unexplainable how we could love and be gracious and forgiving. We're experiencing the powerful work of his kingdom in the future. We're, we're experiencing it now. And the world around us gets a taste of that experience of the kingdom of Jesus when they interact with you and I and encounter his Holy Spirit working through us to love them and be gracious and generous and patient and merciful towards them. We live as citizens of an invisible kingdom, a colony of heaven living here on the earth. But we live, you and I, we live in the tension of the now and the not yet. But the man next to Jesus in this moment would bypass that tension completely and instead directly enter into the not yet. He would directly go to where Jesus reigns as king, what Jesus in the story refers to 
as paradise. I mean, do you hear in this moment an exchange? Do you hear heaven whisper something to you? Do you hear heaven's whisper that there is none beyond heaven's reach? Even this wicked rebel who had just reviled and mocked Jesus moments before, even he could be rescued and saved. Even a person with their final breath and last request could be rescued and promised a place with God in paradise. There's massive reassurance here, isn't there? For some of us who have loved people and lost them and prayed for them all the way down the home stretch, we, we put so much of our faith in Jesus who proved himself to be so gracious that even in the final hour, even in the last breath, he would re- extend mercy and grace and forgiveness to someone. Oh, there's reassurance in this that no one in this life is beyond a Savior's reach, regardless of how wicked or even how late in life they ask for mercy. However, please don't make the mistake of thinking there is no guarantee here that every man and woman will have some sort of a deathbed opportunity to repent because for many, death will arrive sooner than they think. Oh yes, there's hope for all who would place their faith in Jesus, but do not wait another moment to do so if you have not yet. Augustine, the early church father, he cleverly commented on the irony of this moment. He pointed something out that I'll loosely paraphrase how he said it, but what he pointed out was rather clever and I really appreciated it. It was that this man remained a thief even to the very end, in that he was a thief all his life with his greatest heist being this final one, this final moment where he would steal a seat in heaven itself with his final breath. I'll tell you one other story. I think we've got time, then, then we'll wrap it up. But You know, in the fourth century, there's a key figure in church history named Jerome. And here's your nerdy rant of the day. But um, Jerome was this brilliant linguist and scholar who left what was a, a very lucrative family business and a very successful life. He left that in order for him to pour himself into the study of language in order to have the goal of translating the scriptures into the common language of the day, which was Latin. And so he set out to have that be his goal for him to find a way, to make a way, to make sure it happened so that the church could have ready access to uh, the message of the Bible in the common language of the day. And there's this story that takes place in his life. It's an old legend and story that's passed down through oral tradition. And because of that, whether it's folklore folklore or true, we'll never know. But the story takes place shortly after he had completed his life's work. He finally translates the scriptures into the common language of the day, which was such a gift in the history of the church. And it was Christmas Eve, and he was in the Bible lands, in fact, near Bethlehem itself, where Jesus was born, celebrating that and commemorating that. And in this story, he was visited by Jesus in a vision. And Jesus showed up and said, Jerome, what will you give me? And Jerome's quick response was, I will give you my life's work, the translation of these scriptures. And Jesus replied and said, it is not enough. Jerome paused and then says, well, then I'll offer all my possessions, all of my money. Remember, coming from a lucrative family, he had such security available to him. And Jesus responded again and said, it is not enough. Jerome would then offer, well, then all of my life will all be in service to you. And if you know his story, you know that he had already lived a monastic lifestyle. There wasn't much more he could give, but he was offering, if there's anything I've held back, I'll give it all. And still Jesus responded again, it is not enough. And that's when in the story, Jerome looked at Jesus and said, well, then then what do I have left? What can I offer to you? To which Jesus replied and said, Jerome, you can give me your sins and your condemnation. The power of the story is that it's true that what Jesus has asked from us is that we would place our broken humanity with all of our sins and faults at his feet. And that we'd remember afresh today that this is why he came after all. Not for me, like a thief on a cross, trying to get my hands free so that I could try to use them to do something that would make me feel self-righteous enough, good enough to earn what Jesus would give for me. No, my hands are stuck there too. Every impulse inside of me that wants to earn it, that thinks I ought to deserve it, to find a way to deserve it, 
finds my feet fastened to a cross that won't allow me then to go and to walk and to live a life that can try to earn it. No, I am a condemned dead man who has no way to make myself right with Jesus. What can I give him? I can give him every act of service, but what I must give him first is my sin and my condemnation. Remember, it was Jesus who had said in Matthew 11, he said, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You know, for so many of us, I think it's possible that our imagery of Jesus, our imagery of God, is that if we heard him speak to us, it would be run from me. Run from me. Until we've done something that we feel earns and deserves the kind of grace and favor we receive. But Jesus said, come unto me. If you're weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Oh, think about what Jesus says to this guy. He says, I I say unto you, to this thief, just a person requesting forgiveness, to a person crying out to Jesus, this is what he says to you if you'll see yourself in his position. Jesus said, assuredly. He's saying, you can be certain of this. You can be sure of this. Now, we have to be fair. Why would we trust what Jesus says? Well, trust him because he is neither a self-proclaimed prophet or some trending YouTube influencer. He's the one who lived and died and rose again. That's what sets him categorically apart. He claimed to be God and he rose from the dead to prove it. He's neither Dr. Phil nor Muhammad or Buddha. He's categorically different because he's categorically alone when it comes to the authority to speak on what happens when you die because he alone and only tasted death, conquered and defeated it and emerged on the other side of a grave to prove it, to prove his deity and his authority to speak on this, which is something we'll talk about when we conclude our series through the cross, we'll talk about even from a historical lens, why would we trust the resurrection? And there's so much proof for it. Oh, take Jesus at his word, but what am I to be sure of? What did Jesus say here? Be certain of this. The world tells you you can be sure of this, of death and taxes. Jesus interrupts and says, I got three other things for you. Maybe those things are true, but you can be sure, what did he say, that today you will be? You can be sure that life will go on. See, one of the main reasons that people, humanity, fear death is because of all of the unknown wrapped up in it. For so many people, they fear it because they just don't know what's going to happen when they die. Even those we'd classify as religious people face death with great question and doubts and fears. If you're a Buddhist believing in reincarnation, Jesus interrupts and says, no, today you will be. Some quote-unquote Christian traditions will teach you that today you'll arrive in a holding tank and other people will pray your way out. And instead, Jesus says, no, 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 today you will be. Other religious movements, like a funeral I attended years ago for a friend who's in a whole different religion, they were teaching that, hey, heaven has been closed because it's at capacity. And we're waiting, believing that maybe one day in eternity to come, God is bored and there's not much happening. And he will remember the good deeds of this man, that his good deeds were so memorable that he'll make an exception, bring him back to life, and then he'll exist in his presence. And Jesus again interrupts and says, no, today you will be, life goes on. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says it this way, that man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, not to be snuffed out of existence, not to be reincarnated reincarnated into a new being, but immediately in the very presence of God himself where every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Please hear me, there's no need to fear because there's nothing to be uncertain of. Jesus says, trust this, Be certain of this. The first thing is that life will go on. The second thing is that you'll be with him. Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me. You'll be with him. According to a survey conducted by the LondonPaper.com, interviewees were asked about their greatest fears about dying and given a number of options to choose from. The top answer was the prospect of dying alone is feared more than any other aspect of death. The survey found that 32% of Britons named a solitary death. Dying alone is their greatest concern. The thought of being alone doesn't just make the process of dying a scary thing. It, It makes the thought of death itself scary. Potentially being alone for all of eternity, fending for yourself, which ultimately, unfortunately, seems like an accurate description of hell, of separation from God. But there's a promise for someone who'd cry out to Jesus as this thief did, who had nothing to offer him, 
no good works he could try to, 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 to give as a gift to him, but who cried out for mercy saying, would you remember me? There's a promise. Today you will be with me. Jesus himself had promised in John 14, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that teaches us that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Jesus says, you can be sure of this. Assuredly, I say to you, life goes on. You'll be with me and that you'll be in paradise. That's what he said, be certain of. There's no reincarnation. You'll step from this life into eternity with Jesus, where you will forever reside if you, like this thief, cry out for mercy, saying, remember me. I have nothing to offer. I see myself as I am. Jesus, please, I see you as you are. Paradise is promised to all who receive his forgiveness. Webster defines paradise as a place or state of bliss or delight. The Greek root word that's used here, it speaks of a garden enclosed. The imagery is a place that's safe and that's pleasurable. It's enjoyable. The same descriptive words used in describing the Garden of Eden in the Bible are used interchangeably in describing heaven itself. In fact, in the Greek language, again, get nerdy with me for a second, in the Greek Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures, two centuries before Jesus arrived, they use this very word for paradise that Jesus uses in the Greek language to write about in the book of Genesis, the Garden of Eden. What Jesus is promising here is that he's taking us back to the place called Eden, that he's going to redeem and restore all things back to its prior glory, that that is where he's taking us. Remember, all of humanity's story can be summed up in the tale of four gardens, the first being Eden itself, where Adam took a fall and was led to a tree that would lead to his death and to all of ours with him. But there was a garden of Gethsemane, a second garden that came after that, where Jesus took a stand rather than a fall, and he went to a tree that would lead to our life rather than our death. But then there'd be a garden tomb that could neither house him nor hold him. And then a great garden to come where Jesus is promising here, today you will be with me in paradise, this garden enclosed, a place of no more pain or sorrow, where he wipes away tears, where peace and justice reign in place of sin, sickness, suffering, and death. It's not just a future hope, though. It's our great future secured because Jesus would remain on that cross until he breathed his last. And he'd not just come to rescue creation, but he'd come to set up his kingdom and restore all things and make room for you and I with him. You see, the two bookends of the narrative of the Bible itself are Eden, where everything was good rather than marred, and every person in each relationship were whole rather than fractured, and that was because God was enthroned over all of creation, And then in the place at the end of the book that we call heaven, everything is good again and every wrong is made right and all of creation is whole again. And that is because God is once again enthroned over all of creation. His goal is not merely to forgive. He came to redeem and restore all that was lost. That's you and me and the world creation itself. Jesus came to take back creation, but he also came to set up his kingdom. And the storyline of the book is not about going to heaven when you die. By the end of the book, we realize that the whole story was about heaven coming back here to the earth, colliding with the earth. And we don't know much about what heaven will look like. In 2 Corinthians 12, it tells the story of Paul, him talking about himself, saying there, he wasn't certain of whether he was alive or having a vision, but he knew that he was in heaven. And he said, when I was caught up into paradise, I don't even have words to begin to describe what I saw there to you. I think if we took a guess that heaven will look a lot like the Garden of Eden did, like our world did before sin corrupted it, that we will not be floating around in the clouds. This is not some disembodied experience in our future. No, we go back to Eden where there is a resurrection of the dead, where our bodies are made whole and united with our spirits again, and we live with Jesus forever, that that is our future, where the heavenly city comes down and reunites with a redeemed and restored world, where Revelation quotes Jesus yelling out from the throne of God, saying it beautifully, that the dwelling place of God is now with man again. We don't even know much of what we'll do in heaven. We know that we sing, we know that we feast, and we know that we live. 
And I'm convinced that each form of joy and pleasure we experience in this life, it's just a fragment, just a seedling of the beauty and fullness of joy that we'll experience in a perfect eternity to come in our future. Like a tiny seed, that joy seems immense now, but is only the taste and foreshadow of the massive joy and beauty, like a massive tree that could grow out of that seed that is to come in our future. There will never be a moment in heaven where you will pause to remember and miss the pleasures or joy you experienced in this present age because the pleasure and joy will so far outweigh anything you could have ever experienced on this side of heaven. And the greatest part of heaven is that we will see and know Jesus, the King of heaven, that we see him as a lamb led to the slaughter, that we see and understand what it cost God to leave heaven, be bruised and beaten, be pierced and hang on a tree. The creator of the universe doing that for me. We'll see him as just where we sing the song of Moses, where it records the word for us, that just and true are your judgments. Fair and right is all that you do. It says in Psalm 116 verse 11 that in his presence is fullness of joy. And the greatest joy I believe in heaven will be being with heaven's king. The Bible doesn't honestly give us much info about what we do in heaven. It does, however, make it abundantly clear who will be in heaven. That's the people of God united with God. And it is crystal clear in communicating what will not be in heaven. And I think those are the two most important things for you and I to know about heaven, about paradise, is that we will be with him and that the brokenness of our world will no longer be there with us. It's promising that no one wakes up hungry in heaven or cold again, or isolated, or lonely, or crippled, or ill, or anxious, or afraid, or ashamed. It's promising that no community or country will ever face the evil and godless experience of war again, that no physician will ever utter the words cancer again, that no partner will ever suffer the grief and pain of burying their spouse, that no parent will ever hold a stillborn baby again, that no friend will ever prepare another eulogy, that no person will wake up in a hopeless desperation ever again. Do you understand that the joys of heaven will be so deeply rooted in the fact that we are with God and that we are freed from sin's evil tyranny? And that this is what Jesus promised to someone who didn't earn it and someone who couldn't even try to earn it. It's grace. Jesus looked the direction of a person like that and said, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You know, because of this moment, death is really no longer the enemy for the follower of Jesus, is it? We're certain of that. But a wasted life is. You can be sure of this if you've received his forgiveness. You can be sure, as Jesus said, that life goes on, that you'll be with him and that you'll be in heaven. That's why the Bible says in the Psalms, in 116, verse 15, that precious in the sight of the Lord are the death of his saints because it's a beautiful homecoming. And you can close your Bible. I'll land the plane, and then I'll just pray and wrap up and send you, not that way, send you that way for your cold brew coffee. Happy Father's Day. You know, John's Gospel records Jesus making a statement real quick where he said, when the Son of Man is lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. And I, I don't know. In, in fact, I feel certain that that does not mean that everyone will accept Jesus because we can look around and recognize that all throughout the ages, people have rejected him. But undoubtedly, what Jesus meant by this is that all people will react to him. And this story illustrates that very clearly, doesn't it? Two thieves, same backgrounds, basically the same person Two visceral, very opposing reactions. The cross provides a dividing line for all of humanity. It's true, isn't it? Jesus is either loved or rejected. He's revered or he's hated. He's treasured or despised. It's not just Jesus that hangs in this moment, but it's our choice, too, that hangs in a moment like this. Which cross do we find ourselves on? Because there's only one who finds himself on a cross that's marked for redemption, and that's Jesus. And you find humanity lands on one on either side of him, either a cross marked by rebellion or one marked by repentance. Which one are you? The one in the moment who only prayed for a way out 
which let's be honest, so much of the time, doesn't that sound like us? Praying only for a way out of our circumstances. Save me from our problems. Or the one who in this moment is praying, God, change me. God, save me from myself. Rescue me. Remember me. This thief knew so little and yet trusted so very much. As one author eloquently said it, Fulton J. Sheen, in his book on the seven last statements of Jesus, he says, the man sees a cross and adores a throne. He sees a condemned man and invokes a king. O Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. My friends, you might have doubts or questions. You might have tension or frustration or hurt. You might just have pain. But don't allow those to be an excuse for another day. Hear Jesus say to you as he responds to your repentance and faith in him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So Jesus, we pause to thank you. To thank you that we find ourselves here, not needing to feel the weight and pressure to earn and deserve this, but Jesus being the one who had no way to earn this, who could simply have a change of his heart, who could simply see himself as he was and cry out to you, seeing you as you are. Father, thank you. Thank you that this is the gospel, not legalism, not pressure, not self-help, not a list of to-dos. This is news to believe of your love and grace and commitment to us. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you did everything that was needed for us to be made right with you, to belong with you. Jesus, we thank you. And Jesus, for many of us as followers of you, as followers of Jesus, we hear these words echo over us. Assuredly, I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. Jesus, thank you for your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness. Jesus, for people who their decision still hangs in the balance, I pray that you by your spirit would speak to them in a way that I cannot. And that they, like Isaiah did, like this man did, like I have in my own life, would see themselves as they are and clearly see you, Jesus, and their deep need for you. And may they cry out to you in this moment. Jesus, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.